in three and two. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is Tim Anderson, the Appraiser's Advocate, and on this podcast, we've got Craig Capilla, super lawyer extraordinaire from his car in a snowstorm, and he's going to talk to us about four recent legal cases that are extremely important to appraisers. First of all, Tim, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Craig, now I think everybody who listens to this knows you're an attorney, but go ahead and give us a little background on what it is you do, where you do it, why you do it, who your clients are, etc. Well, by way of background, I am a licensed attorney. I am to practice law in the state of Illinois, state of Wisconsin, and I'm also admitted to practice in several federal courts, Northern District of Illinois, Eastern District, Wisconsin, North District of Indiana, and I'm, as we speak, waiting to hear back about my into the Western District of Michigan. I started out, actually, in practice, uh, small residential real estate, and then the economy tanked, so I needed to find something else to do with my time. It was at that point in 2008 that I went to the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, which is the state licensing agency in the state of Illinois. Uh, I spent the next four and a half years at that point as a prosecutor for the IDFPR handling real estate license complaints. So that was the real estate appraisers, real estate brokers. We had home inspectors. Uh, at the time in Illinois, we even licensed uh, timeshare and land sales. During the course of that time, we brought appraisal management companies online and began to license them. So when the AMC bill was being written in Illinois, I was in the room for that, though I don't want to take any credit for what a mess that legislation legislation turned out to be. Nobody was listening to that one. But nevertheless, that was kind of the origin of how I got into this practice. Did that for about four and a half years. And then in 2012, came back out into private practice again with a brand new law firm. A handful of us came from different backgrounds. And so we've got a litigation firm on the north side of Chicago. We're in the north suburbs. And a lot of my practice now is defending professional licensees. Again, real estate appraisers, real estate brokers, both for license complaints, and in malpractice lawsuits when those get filed. So sometimes we'll deal with the insurance companies and we'll be their insurance-appointed counsel. In other circumstances, we're dealing direct to client because either they have, they lack coverage, coverage lapsed, or something else happened. But again, at this point, we're defending the professionals. I'm out of the prosecuting business. We're on the side of the appraiser and all of this fun stuff. So that's kind of what brings me to where we're at today. Well, Craig, thank you. That gives us a great perspective on what it is you do and why it is you do it. Now, before we got on the air, you and I had talked about the fact that we were going to cover some recent questions court cases that directly affect appraisers, what it is we do, how it is we do it, what lessons we need to learn about what and how we do it, etc. Can we start with the case of Sage v. Blagg? To summarize, and again, I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to fill in the details, but basically in summary, the uh, plaintiff said that the appraiser measured the house incorrectly and therefore there were some, pri there were some problems with the sales price, and the appraiser said, hey, I measured it for the client, the lender, not for you. Therefore, you have no recourse to me. But the state appellate court said, au contraire, you did owe the plaintiff something. Can you elaborate on that for us? 
Yeah, certainly. So Sage is one of those cases that it's a good starting off point because I think this is one of those cornerstone cases of where we were, where we went from there. And and it's understanding also for everyone out there listening that this is an area that's in dispute and it's not consistent. So depending upon what state you live in and where you practice, there's inconsistency in the application of this. But Sage is a good jumping off point. I actually couldn't tell you if it's blag or blog, but I'm I'm confident that Mr. Blaggerblog isn't listening anyway. So that's okay. We're, we're going to go ahead and I'm just going to call it Sage so that we can avoid that. That particular case. Now we're looking, we're looking at something here in state of Arizona, but it was a rather thorough review of what duties are owed by the appraiser and to whom. One of the defenses asserted in this circumstance actually happens to be one of my favorite defenses, which is doesn't even matter if I was wrong. I didn't owe any obligation to you, oh, end reader of some sort. I worked for the client. Client was happy with what they got. We're done here. And I support that position. Believe me, I've used it enough. There's tremendous merit to taking a position like that. The highest of orders is I was right. All right, that's a great defense. A little bit further down the list is doesn't matter if I was right or not. It wasn't for you. That's a little bit more shaky ground as, as we're about to talk about The court in Sage ultimately decided here that the expectation is what matters and that the end user was a was a homeowner. And it was reasonably understood that they may rely on the information contained within the report. One of the things that appraisers always have to keep in mind as a profession, you are in the profession of providing information. And so you're held to a standard as an information provider. And that standard is that you're going to be reasonably diligent when you provide that information and errors or inconsistencies in that information can be held against you. You may fall short of meeting your obligations. The way to curtail that concern is to try to limit the available users of that information. That's why when you hear various people, whether it be other appraisers who focus on consulting and liability concerns, you hear other attorneys speak about this. For anybody out there who's heard Peter Christensen speak on any level or read any of the articles, anything like that, one of the areas Peter constantly goes back to is incorporating language that cuts off that chain of liability and curtails the available sources of risk. We've long argued about the 2005 rewrite of the GSE forms, the the 1004, for example, in the pre-populated language, the boilerplate that's baked in there, specifically Certification 23, really kicks the door wide open to lots of other folks being allowed to rely on facets of the report. I loathe that statement. And I know we've been talking for several years now about the GSE forms getting a rewrite, and there's a working group who's looking into all of that. My shouting from the rooftops is get that language out of the report. It's just harmful to the appraiser. But in in the Sage case, the court found that the homeowner reasonably relied on the statements of the appraiser. And so where the appraiser made an error, there was liability attached. My defense for that, it's the intended user and no other such person or party shall be allowed to rely on this. 
Well, the problem with certification 23 is it's baked into the document and you may end up contradictory. But that was really the jumping off point for liability attaching beyond the lender chain. We know that the lender is the client. The client has a right to rely on this. The appraiser has an obligation to be correct for the client and also anyone further down the lending chain. If it's the GSEs or if it just gets transitioned over to a successor lender, all of them have a reasonable right to rely on the conclusions and the facts considered by the appraiser. Sage opened the door really for other unintended users to form a claim of reliance. And it's still an argument that we see today. Within the past couple of years, I've had a court case in Illinois, in one of the northern districts in Illinois. I, I mean, this at the state level. So it was, it was one of the northern counties that we were dealing with, where a homeowner on a construction loan argued that they had a reasonable reliance on the data of the appraiser. And fortunately, in our case, we were able to argue against that, that rely, there was no actual reliance. It didn't occur. And we actually prevailed on the argument that the appraiser had no duty at all to the borrower but I can tell you that that wasn't because of the paperwork of the appraiser. It was actually because of in the loan docs, the lender had language that said, you as the borrower have an obligation to go get your own appraisal. If you want to find this stuff out, we're going to engage an appraiser and that appraiser is for us and you don't get to rely on it. So curiously enough, the thing that saved the appraiser's bacon in that regard was that the bank actually broke the chain of liability for the appraiser in the bank docs. That's something that didn't hit here in SAGE. And so the court was able to determine, based on language in the report, that the borrower did have a reasonable reliance on the information. All right. Now, let me ask you a question. You, you said that it was the bank that broke the uh, connection between the liability of the appraiser uh, to the eventual buyer of the house. Typically, we don't see the bank taking such a pro or even a neutral stance toward the appraiser. The appraiser, I'm assuming, had some kind of language in the report saying, my liability is limited to my client, the bank, and any named intended users. But yet the court basically ignored that and went with the bank's language separating the appraiser from anybody else down the line. Was that the magic bullet in that particular case? Yeah, in that particular case, it was the bank's own loan documents that won the day because this was ultimately a loan file that contemplated potentially being utilized on the secondary market with GSEs. And you're right. One, the, the appraiser doesn't always have the advantage of knowing what's in the loan documents. In fact, almost certainly they don't have a copy of that. And further, not all bank documents are as pro-appraiser or appraiser-friendly. I, I will say anecdotally that this particular lender has an awesome team of in-house appraisers that do their in-house review work anyway. And I can only imagine that this is one of those water cooler moments where those appraisers were like, you know how we could really tighten up our bank docs? Let's throw that line in there too. That'll help. You're not going to get that with every lender. So as an appraiser, you certainly can't rest on that laurel and hope it's hidden in there in a document that 99% of the time you're never going to get to see. And so you wouldn't be able to verify anyway. Your best practice on trying to cut that off is having very narrowly tailored statements about intended user. 
So even where you're dealing with that baked in statement in a Fannie and a Freddie form, okay, and people, these people may be considered to be reliant and blah, 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 blah. But in your intended user statement, the intended user is my client, the bank. If you're getting it through an appraisal management company, them as well as an intended user of this some other successor lender and no other individuals or entities unless stated here within, you can help slam that door shut. We didn't have that in Sage. And in that circumstance, that left the appraiser out in the cold. So in this case, Mr. Vlag found himself on the wrong end of that decision. He might have had some exclusionary language in it, but whatever, the court didn't buy it. Let's hold that thought of the exclusionary language for a second, because we're going to come back to it. And let's talk about another related case. Let's talk about the, the California case of Tyndall v. Murphy and what that teaches us. What should we learn from that particular case and that particular decision? That was then a more modern evolution of where we came from in SAGE. And there's a couple of key components about Tyndall, and it actually has a companion case in California as well. There's two cases in California that are very closely tied together. The other one, Willemson v. Metrosilis, and then into Tyndall v. Murphy. That was an evolution of this question about reasonable reliance and who does the appraiser actually owe a duty toward. I like to refer to this chain of cases as the ones that got it right. It's never quite that simple. And again, there is a there is a split across jurisdictions about these types of matters. We talked about SAGE being an Arizona matter. These ones are a California case. So this is something of a state-by-state -state issue, and that's important for the appraisers to be aware of. You should certainly know what the applicable standard is in your home state, wherever you practice. If you are an appraiser with a license in multiple states, I always considered this to be a part of competency generally, you'd better know what the applicable standards are in whatever state you so choose to practice. You can't just hope your home rule applies to you if it's the favorable one. If you tread across a state line into a state that has the less favorable position on these things, that's fine. You're assuming that risk in doing so, so you at least ought to be aware of it before you take that step. Tyndall and Willemson modified this position to really curtail the liability chain and exclude the borrower. And this became a circumstance where there's a finding that the appraiser as the information provider does not, in fact, owe a duty to the borrower in this circumstance because the intended use of the assignment is for the lender to assess the risk of collateral to be held against the loan that is not the same thing as accurate or probable sales price or contract price or value in that context. And so really getting into the weeds of this one, the jumping off point is the appraiser is solving an equation for X and the borrower's concern is a completely different equation the appraiser has not solved for that X. They may be exactly the same thing as a numerical value. They may not be, but the appraiser in intended use in an intended user statement gets to define what their purpose is. That's another opportunity for the appraiser to cut off that liability chain by saying my intended use is for this purpose, for determining market value in furtherance of a mortgage finance transaction. 
and for no other use unless explicitly stated here within this report. It's the age-old question. Somebody calls you up as an appraiser and says, hey, I really want you to come and value my home. What do you need it for? Well, I just want to know what my home's worth. Sure you do. What do you need that number for? Because there's different reasons why you might want to ask that question. The one that the person doesn't want to talk about, because I'm going through a really ugly divorce. And so I'm going to take your number and I'm going to try to use that to benefit myself. Well, that's when the trouble starts. You can curtail all of that by saying this appraisal is intended to determine a market value for the knowledge of person X and for no other purpose. It may not be relied upon in any other circumstance. Further, it may not be used for purposes of evidence in any judicial proceeding. I will not testify. You could really kind of pile it on there. But the, the Tyndall and Willemson cases really break that out to say the appraiser sets the scope and intended use and intended user are a part of that. You can slam the door shut to expansive liability and the borrower can't get back to you because their concern or their need for that value is different than the problem you were being asked to solve as an appraiser. As an aside on Tyndall and Williamson, one of the things that I, I really want the I really want the listeners to be aware of in those matters is that the court was helped on its way to that decision. Both the Northern California chapter of the Appraisal Institute and the National Association of Appraisers in both of those cases participated in guidance to the court by way of amicus filings and letter writing and letting letting the judiciary understand, hey, we're practitioners in this space. Please understand in our sphere, these, this is what these words mean. This is how this goes. And so for the listeners here, this is why being active and engaged as a professional is so important. Those groups that you belong to, these, these dues that you're paying, this is how they help you. When something like this case comes along or something like these cases come along and those associations, your state coalition, a group, a national organization like the NAA, a professional organization, association like the Institute or the ASA or somebody like that, when you can get those groups to put together a letter writing campaign, to file amicus briefs in court, those can really shape how the law impacts your profession. It's not just about arguing for legislation and all of that. Sometimes there's an active role in court cases, especially if things go up at the appellate level like these did, where those organizations can really help out the profession at large. I mean, for the appraiser, for in, in the in Tyndall and in Williamson, it was great for those appraisers themselves. They got a good outcome at the end of the day, and with lots of good lawyering and lots of legal fees coming out of the insurance and all that. But that's a part of the process. But by them going through that, by them ending up. Unfortunately for them, being the pioneers that took those arrows, it actually benefited the profession at large tremendously to get Willemson first and then Tyndall to come out. And now you've got an appellate ruling in California that breaks that liability chain, further supported by a second appellate decision that really relied on and solidified the first one. That's a huge development for appraisers. That's a fantastic outcome. And if I had to really give one takeaway, first of all, I think the courts were right there, and that's the arguments that we've made on a number of occasions as the thought process on how those courts arrived at that decision. 
But the real big takeaway for me on all that one was look at how the appraisers as a profession stood up on behalf of their fellow appraiser and assisted the process and helped guide the courts to come up with that right decision. That more than anything else is that's huge. That's worth its weight in gold. Well, that's worth the the membership fee, I, I you'd think. Um, Good grief, I would think so. Yeah, uh, Craig, <laughs> let, uh, let me ask a couple more questions. Now we've got Tyndall, and then its president, Case Willemson, and then you've got Sage. Now, two appraisers. Basically, the borrower was bent out of shape, but the appraiser. In one instance, the court says, nope, sorry, borrower, you got no recourse. In the other case, the court says, yeah, borrower, go after the appraiser. Is there anything that ties these cases together? Is there anything that we can learn from these two cases to protect ourselves in addition to what you said earlier about making sure that the intended use and the intended user are clear and that we set the intended use and we set the intended user rather than the client? I think if there's one common thread throughout, it would be taking advantage of the opportunities to include language, include limiting conditions where an appraiser can, is if you don't have that language in there, you could find yourself in a sage type scenario or relying on hopefully getting good counsel to be able to wage a very good Tyndall or Willemson kind of an argument. That leaves it a little bit of a gray area. Not everyone in every state is going to have the advantage of already having case law that follows along essentially with Willemson or Tyndall. Not everyone's that fortunate yet. I think we're trending there, which is good. I, I see more of it as it goes along, but I think as a common thread, what can the appraisers as a profession in their day-to-day -day practice take away from all of this? Give yourself every opportunity you can to get the positive outcome by being very careful, very deliberate with the statements you include. If you're stuck using a GSE form, understand that your door of liability is slid open wider than if you're not using the GSE forms. If you're able to do private client work, you can start right from the outset in your engagement letter, work towards slamming the door shut to any extraneous liability. This is for the client and for no one else. I've seen language as tight as this is for the client, and I recognize that the client might share this report with other professionals, a lawyer, an accountant, whomever, but this report is for the client, and I don't have an obligation to any third parties, period. End of story. That's pretty strong language. That's right in the engagement. That's your contract. Now, you support that again by dropping that exact same language into the body of the report itself, and that's about the best you can do to protect yourself. And that gets you pushed down the path towards getting to a Willemson or a Tyndall outcome because you're doing everything you can to slam that door shut. If that's, I, I think out of those two cases, the takeaway is use your words to limit that liability as much as you can. So the, the, the pre-printed boilerplate in, for example, the 1004 form uh, says, for example, uh, well, certification number 23, basically it says anybody with a functioning kidney can go after the appraiser, uh, in so many words. So you're saying that with the properly worded language somewhere in the report so that it's clear, it might be possible not to shut that door, but at least to close it significantly. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'm trying to remember where this is located. And obviously, as I'm 
in transit. I don't have the ability to do the research on the fly bit here. But I know at some point, Peter Christensen, whether he did it through the Appraisal Institute and it's located somewhere on the AI website or whether it's on Peter's Valuation Legal website, one way or the other, I recall at a certain point, Peter crafting language specifically intended really to try to rebut Certification 23 and to really tighten that up. Suffice it to say, I know that language is out there somewhere. I remember seeing it multiple times. I think I probably first started seeing it pop up in 2014 or 2015. Uh, I know I've seen it a handful of other times, too, when he's given a talk somewhere or something like that. I'm rambling my way to saying it's really good. And as an appraiser, if you can if you can kind of go use the magic Google machine and find that stuff, it's absolutely worth your time. See if you can come up with some of that language and pretty much just drag and drop it into your reports. It's to exactly address that concern. Because the thing you have to remember about the pre-populated language in those GSE forms, you can't contradict that language openly. I mean, that's the good old-fashioned, you use a 1004 form in a divorce case. And the first question that comes up is, well, why are you using this in the divorce? It says right here, this is for a mortgage finance transaction. Oh, well, flip three pages back. I said, actually, it's really for a divorce. Okay, that doesn't work. That's not going to get the job done for you. So you can't just outright contradict the language that's in there. However, you can still use appropriate limiting language to tighten that up a little bit. While you may have an understanding through Certification 23 that all of these other individuals may get a copy and may seek to utilize the data you're providing or the opinions, you can still state pretty emphatically, but none of them are really an intended user and they are not authorized to rely on this. Is that 100% perfect? No, but I'll also tell you this, if that makes one single person think twice about filing a license complaint or a lawsuit, it was worth the price of putting it in there, which was free. Sometimes the best you can do is scare somebody off and make it look harder than it really might be. And even there's even that has value. So that is kind of how I would express that one. Okay. Let's hold that thought on how appraisers can protect themselves. And let's go to another case about appraisers and protecting themselves and those who would like to get deep into our E&O pockets. Let's talk about the, how do you pronounce it, Yano or Lano? Well, it depends which state you're in, but you're on the right track. Okay. So it's a, it's a double L to start, L-L-A-N-O. So I think properly it's Yano financing, although a lot of folks out there know it. Oh, oh those Lano cases, okay. of which there were many. Basically, if I understand correctly, Lano or Yano was going around to lenders buying up absolutely dead loans for pennies on the dollar. And then with no relationship whatsoever to the appraiser who did the appraisal on the dead loan was suing the appraiser for malfeasance and misfeasance and liability and bad cooking and lousy dressing. I mean, they were just suing them for absolutely everything, trying to get the appraisers to settle and rain checks down upon them. But it didn't work out that way, did it? For the most part, it really did not. I won't say that the scheme, if you will, was 100% 
failure, but it was a pretty low return on that threshold. So again, background on those cases were round about 2015, nearly 500 lawsuits nationwide were filed against appraisers by this one group, this Yano Financing Group. And they're a group based out of Texas. And they were a bit of a successor organization to some other attacks on appraisers that came out of that little tiny town in Texas. Impact funding, impact mortgage. There were some other entities that that circulated around that too. So there were there were multiple bites at the apple at putting together this scheme. But essentially what happened, these were based on appraisal reports that were performed by the appraisers, largely between 2004 and 2007. I might have seen one as late as a 2008 report. But at the time we're dealing with this stuff, many of these are a decade old or older. So the first thing that probably people are thinking is, well, wait a second. I thought we only had to keep this crap for five years. Yeah, okay, here's the problem, folks. That's the use path minimum standard. But I can tell you from experience, because I had a lot of experience in those cases, we had over 50 of them filed in Cook County, Illinois alone, which is the county where Chicago's located. So we had 50 of those lawsuits just in our backyard. Florida got hit really hard with those. And we're going to talk about, in particular, a, a ruling from a Florida matter. But these were this was a nationwide effort against appraisers. A lot of appraisers found themselves in a prickly situation because they didn't have any records anymore from performing those assignments. Everybody waited the full five years before destroying their files, of course. A lot of folks had also either gotten out of the business entirely and let their license lapse, and along with that, let their insurance lapse, or we had an economic collapse in 2008 and 2009. So a number of other individuals took some time off from appraising and then came back around to it. But in the meantime, let their insurance lapse or something like that. In those circumstances, I will tell you, I've probably never seen a more congenial, unified effort of all the insurance companies to mount a robust defense to those claims. It was truly, it was, it was impressive that the insurers really came through hot and heavy to defend their appraisers under those policies and say, absolutely, we're not settling these cases. We're going to break these. Nobody is paying out on these claims. That was great. For the folks that still had coverage, there were a whole heck of a lot of folks out there that no longer had insurance coverage. And anywhere that these schemes, these lawsuits were successful, often lined up with appraisers that had to pay now out of pocket and were able to dispose of these for what we refer to in the legal community as nuisance value. I am paying to make this go away. I'm willing to throw a little bit of money at it to put this fire out. Short of that, there were absolutely no big strikes. And a number of these cases went through summary judgment. I know of some that actually eventually made it to trial and ultimately went up on appeals. And that's where what we're talking about here starts to matter for appraisers because it can be applied forward. For the cases that got fully litigated, there is a chain of liability from the appraiser to the lender and to successor lenders. But Yano Financing came into the game as a loan servicer. And in reality, what their attempt was, was really to purchase the right to sue people on these bad debt. These were loans that had gone bad as much as a decade earlier. They had been foreclosed. They had been cashed out. I had one in particular that got filed in federal court that plaintiff claimed, but for the appraiser, we wouldn't have lent on this, but the appraiser was negligent and the appraiser also breached a contract to us. And so they owe us back for all of our losses. And we, in our initial 
research of the claim found that there was actually a release and waiver of the mortgage filed on that parcel, which stated that there had been a full satisfaction of the loan. So the folks at Yano weren't even digging back far enough to see whether or not the lender had actually gone ahead and released the mortgage because they got paid out. That just It was part of a bulk, and they went ahead and filed a lawsuit. Now, for the plaintiff's attorney in that case, that was a very uncomfortable conversation with a federal judge when we brought that to their attention. But that didn't stop the process from starting to begin with and having it go that route. The importance of the case holding in the Yano finance cases, and these were actually fairly consistent amongst any of them that went the distance, there were three things in particular that came out of it that were important in in, in no particular order. There was a strong thread of case findings that said Yano financing did not have an appropriate claim against the appraiser that there was some duty because Yano was not a successor lender. They were merely a claim servicer, and the mortgage company, the front-end lender, and even the secondary market lenders, none of them had assigned the rights and obligations of the note to Yano Financing. And so as a result, the appraiser's chain of liability stopped at that point. If Yano had managed to go further and become a successor lender in some way, they may have acquired that liability and then the ability to pursue it. They didn't in these circumstances. That's one of the important holdings and all of that. Another one, which was a reaffirmation of things that we had already been arguing, but it came to fruition, was just further solidifying the idea that the appraisal report is not a contract. So to bring a claim of breach of contract against an appraiser for mistakes, errors, omissions in the appraisal report is not a valid claim because the report is not a contract. Had there been a copy of the engagement letter floating around out there and the engagement letter said, I will I will meet this standard, I will abide by these guidelines and such, that may give rise to the claim, but solely on the basis of the report itself, that does not give rise to a breach of contract. That's a very good outcome for appraisers because in most states, see all of the ones that I'm aware of, the statute of limitations for a breach of contract claim is significantly longer than the statute of limitations for a negligence claim. For example, in Illinois, it's 10 years. So for everybody whose first reaction hearing that we're having lawsuits about appraisals that are seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, well, how does that happen? USPAP says I only have to keep my records for five years. Yeah, that's fine, but you can still get sued for 10 on a breach of contract claim, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but understand that that five years is a minimum standard. The other component, the common holding out of all of this, again, was that the duty or the claim under negligence was frequently timed out because that does have a statute of limitations that's regularly shorter. In some states, it's as short as three years I've seen. I think I've actually heard rumor that there's some states that are at two years. Some states are as long as six years, but that often comes with a concept called the discovery rule. And the discovery rule says the clock on the statute of limitations doesn't start running until the aggrieved party knew or should have known of the error, the misstatement, the harm. In a number of cases, Yano Financing argued that, hey, we only bought this right to this bad debt eight months ago, a year ago. So the statute of limitations on the discovery rule, we didn't start accruing this until a year ago. And that was pretty successfully beaten back in many jurisdictions by saying, hold on. 
on. The intended user and client of this was the initial lender who ran it through a review process. They knew at the time or should have known if the report was any good or not. And by the way, if what you're telling me is correct and the loan failed shortly thereafter, well, that was really a good time for them to know or should know if there was a problem with the valuation. So most of those cases on that legal thread got clipped off because the discovery rule started running very early on in the process. And so statutes of limitations were helpful. But those those three concepts along the way, who really does the appraiser owe a duty to? What are the applicable legal theories of liability and how long of a statute of limitations attaches to each? That was the key component or the key components of the Yano financing scheme. And Tim, as you said, rightly enough, that was not a successful play on the part of Yano. Most of the appraisers got out of that with very little harm having to pay their deductible or something along those lines and rather successful outcomes. It's important for appraisers, though, to pay close attention to maintaining consistent insurance coverage, making sure coverage doesn't lapse, making sure they have that prior acts coverage so you don't end up as one of the appraisers who gets left out in the cold when a circumstance like that accrues and you no longer have coverage and have to go it alone. Yeah, going alone would not be the way to go. Craig, you've tied these cases together basically by letting us know that it is to our benefit to set ourselves, not leave it up to the client, it is to our benefit to set our own intended use and intended users. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think that right there is maybe the single most significant thing an appraiser can do to limit liability is really grab the reins of the scope. And so identifying and expressly stating that intended use and intended user, or more simply put, just consistently throughout the process, be very clear and concise. This is what I am doing. This is what I will not do. This is what it's for. And this is who it's for. If you can meet, if you can kind of, if you can meet those criteria, you can state that clearly so that the reader has no choice but to understand you've gone a very long way towards limiting your liability. We're going to consider the the issue of limiting liability a little bit more toward the end, but I wanted to get to one more case, and that was the Zillow ruling in which the court indicated that Zillow was not providing appraisals. It was merely providing estimates. Is that correct? That's correct. And so this was a case that was brought, it was a class action lawsuit that was brought in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. So I had a front row seat to this one. This was great. This was initially brought at the trial court level before Judge Amy St. Eve, who wrote a very thorough and well-considered opinion on the matter, dismissing the case and basically barring the claim of a couple of homeowners as lead plaintiffs in a class against Zillow. Their argument being Zillow is really undervaluing our homes, and so they're impacting our rights to sell our home at a higher value because people are jumping online, looking at these Zestimates, and Zillow's, this is a a technical term here, Zillow is really screwing us. I've heard heard other people use that technical term. Yeah, it's kind of rare, (laughs) rare and arcane, though. It's true. It's, It's a term of art. 
And so they filed a, a class action lawsuit against Zillow, essentially on that theory that there were a couple of thoughts here. One, that the Zestimate was inaccurate or misleading. Two, that providing the Zestimates was an infringement and unlicensed practice because they're providing a valuation, they're providing an appraisal, and people are relying on those free appraisals to the detriment of the homeowners themselves, and it's impacting the market. Judge St. Eve wrote a, a very thorough and detailed opinion, essentially denying the claim, stating two things, and, and both are important. One, a Zestimate is not an appraisal. It's an estimate with a Z slapped on the front of it, but it is an algorithm. It's a model, but it is not an appraisal. An appraisal is defined. An appraiser performs the appraisal. This is not that. The Zestimate can be right, wrong, or otherwise, and nobody really cares because it's nothing other than some computer model that spits out a number. So first things first, federal court found not an appraisal. Secondly, Judge St. Eve also found that individuals have no private right of action to bring a license claim. So on the thread that this was also unlicensed appraisal activity, the court found that, well, it's not an appraisal anyway, so you can't get there from here. But you, John Q. Public, also do not have the statutory authority to bring a license complaint in open court. Now, that sounds like just kind of an odd duck, and it is, admittedly. There's not a lot of folks that pursue that path, but again, it's a really good outcome for appraisers. You still face all of the typical lines of civil liability theory, breach of contract, negligence, other tort law, those sorts of things. But that decision by Judge St. Eve in the Northern District of Illinois really slams the door shut. You'll notice I keep going back to the idea of slamming the door. I want everybody to focus on just imagine the joyful, blissful sound of a door being slammed. And that's what's happening to your troubles and tribulations, okay? It's, it, it's actually, it's a delightful image if you can conjure that up. Judge St. Eve slammed the door shut on the idea of John Q. Public disgruntled borrower or even lender also coming back and trying to say, yeah, and furthermore, you also violated this state license law, that state rule. That is the province of the states and the regulatory boards, and they have full authority to enforce that stuff. But private individuals and entities do not have that right. So that cuts the channel off. That's one risk that appraisers should not have to face is trying to defend those claims. Why? Because the state regulatory agencies have the body of knowledge, whether it be through having a professional board or professional bureaucrats, but whatever the case may be, they are situated as governmental agencies, as governmental bodies to interpret and enforce those laws. Private citizens cannot do so. That decision then got taken up to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and a very esteemed panel of federal appellate judges came down with about a two-pager that essentially said, yeah, what she said, great ruling, again, to benefit the appraisers. They didn't even blink off of what Judge St. Eve had come up with at the trial court level. The caption and the list of names of judges deciding the case 
was actually longer than the body of text announcing what their decision was. They were so thoroughly satisfied with the logic and the application of the trial court judge. So now you've got a federal appeals circuit coming down on the side of appraisers tangentially, but in two significant things. If anybody ever asks, well, why did you come up with this number? Because Zillow's estimate said that. Look, the Seventh Circuit has said, we don't care what Zillow said because that's not an appraisal. So if you ever want to have that argument with somebody about what the value of your work is, the Seventh Circuit ended that argument for you. You're in great shape on that one. And they also have determined, and this is specific to the Illinois license law, but most of the other license laws are structured similarly. So this is likely to apply, I won't say uniformly nationwide, I say in most jurisdictions, only the licensing body can charge you with a licensing violation. Private individuals cannot do so. And that's a positive development for the appraisers because that's one less thing you have to worry about when you get that grumpy individual that's never going to be happy with anything you've produced. They can still turn you into the state, but they can't sue you for that claim themselves. And that's good because now that's one less thing you have to worry about defending. So even though most appraisers hate Zillow, this is a decision from uh, from Zillow, from the Zillow case, that actually benefits appraisers in two areas. Number one, it shows that Zillow basically has no weight as an indication of value. And two, well, it can't stop someone from complaining about you with your state board, it certainly is going to make it a little bit more difficult to sue you in court over what you did or did not do. Am I correct? No, that's that's absolutely correct. So I think it's a fair summation to say that the best thing Zillow ever did for appraisers was find a way to get sued in a class action lawsuit because by no intentional fault of Zillow, they got a federal court to decide that what they do is not an appraisal. And so that benefited the appraisers. It's kind of a happy accident, but it's a good one. Uh, Craig, let me thank you for your time, your expertise. It means a lot to us to be able to hear this from someone who knows. It means a lot to us to be able to apply this, and you have answered a lot of questions. I'm sure a lot of appraisers have. If someone were to need to get in touch with you with uh, questions on what we've covered here or perhaps even seeking representation, how would they get in touch with you? Certainly. Well, again, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm grateful that you reached out. I'm always happy to discuss these sorts of things. If anybody has follow-up questions or concerns, wants to get a, uh, get in touch with me, uh, there's a couple of different ways to do that. First and foremost, if you go to our firm website, which is charlesfranklinlaw.com, you can find all six of us on the website. And so you'll find my email. You can find our phone number there. My email address is just my first initial and last name. So C-C-A-P-I-L-L-A at charlesfranklinlaw.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. All, all of those uh, social media bits that we've got, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that stuff. I, I've got public accounts on all of those because I forfeited my privacy so long ago, I'm never getting it back. So you, you can find me on any of those things. But if ever there's a question or a concern, give us a call. You give me a call. Give me an email. And we'll see if we can point you in the right direction. I'm licensed to practice law in Illinois and Wisconsin. 
and in, in several of the federal districts, I'm authorized to appear there as well. Uh, so if something like that pops up, I mean, I'd be more than happy to get involved and see where I can help. We also work in a number of other states and we'll affiliate with attorneys that are boots on the ground in those states, whether it's through limited or temporary appearances, what's uh, often called pro hoc vice. I've done that in a number of circumstances. Uh, we've consulted, and and truth be told, it, you know, if you've got questions or concerns about that, turn to your professional organizations as well. Like I had said earlier about uh, the idea with with Tyndall and with Williamson and NAA coming through very strong on that. The Northern California chapter, the Appraisal Institute, folks. If you've got questions or concerns about that stuff, turn to your professional organizations too, because they can help point you in the right direction, resolve some of those concerns or they can put you in touch with people that can help. This is unsolicited, so I don't know if Tim will cut this because I didn't tell him this is coming, but look, if you're an NAA member and you've got a problem and you try to reach out to them to get some help, you're probably going to get routed to Tim. Are you going to get routed to Brian Reynolds or someone like that, folks that can help? Or you're going to get a group like that, and they're going to tell you, hey, you're, you're over here, you're doing this. Go Peter Christensen. Here's how you get a hold of them. Hey, call Craig. Here's how you get a hold of them. Those professional bodies are, that's your team. That's your support system. And that's how you're going to get a hold of folks that can help you through these, whether it's preventative medicine and tightening up your practices on the front end. Tim, I know you're, you're uniquely situated to help people out tightening up their practices before it becomes a problem, as well as addressing their concerns once the problem's already occurred. There's some other folks that can help out in that regard, too. The professional organizations can help direct you to the folks that can give you the right answers. I will never be the smartest person in the room when it comes to the appraisal stuff for any number of reasons, and, and lack of bandwidth is one of them. But by gosh, do I know the smartest people in all of those rooms, and I've been in enough rooms now that I can probably get you to the person you need to talk to who is the smartest one in the room. So don't ever hesitate to reach out to me to pursue that. Craig, thank you. I, I appreciate your service. I appreciate your candor. I appreciate the fact that you are one of the recognized experts in this field and thus can answer our questions. Yes, sir. I appreciate the opportunity for being on, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing you soon in some place much much warmer than I am right now. <laughs> Craig, thank you so much. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it. That was Craig Capilla, super lawyer extraordinaire, and he took time on a car trip from Michigan back to Chicago to address us, and we appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening. This is Tim Anderson, the appraiser's advocate, if I can ever be of help to you, please contact me, tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. Again, thank you, and we're clear. <laughs>